Okay, well, a very, very warm welcome, everybody, to this talk in the 141st session of the Aristotelian Society. It's a very great pleasure for me to introduce our speaker this evening, who's Nico Cornell, who's Professor of Law at the University of Michigan. Um, Nico works on normative ethics, on contract law, and on private law theory. And he's currently working on a book on the relation between rights and wronging. Um, tonight's talk is on gambling on others and relying on others. And I think Nico will talk for maybe 40, 45 minutes, something like that. We'll have a short break and then there'll be a Q&A. So without further ado, very warm welcome and over to you, Nico. Thank you. Uh, yeah, thanks for, for inviting me. Um, and uh, yeah, I'll just I'll just um, get started. Um, uh, and when the Brits invite invite you to do something, I guess uh, I wasn't sure if I'm if that is good for me to start with Shakespeare or or very bad form to start with Shakespeare. But um, I'm going to start with Shakespeare. Uh, um, uh, and the play Cymbeline uh, revolves significantly around a wager. Um, Posthumus Leonatus has secretly married the king's daughter Imogen, and upon discovering this fact, the king rejects the marriage, banishes Posthumus to Italy. Uh, and there Posthumus meets Giacomo, who, uh, to whom he boasts of Imogen's qualities. And then provoked, Giacomo dares Posthumus into a wager. Giacomo stakes 10,000 ducats against Posthumus's diamond wedding ring that if Giacomo uh, is given an introduction to Imogen, he can seduce her. Posthumus accepts, and provides the letter of introduction. And then the remainder of the play um, concerns largely the aftermath of this wager as Giacomo tricks Posthumus into believing that he has, has succeeded. So the wager is a really striking objectification of Imogen um, and Shakespeare seems to draw out the objectification really quite explicitly. At the beginning of the exchange, um, Posthumus contrasts his ring with his wife declaring, the one may be sold or given, or if there were wealth enough for the purchase or merit for the gift, uh, but the other is not a thing for sale but, and only the gift of the gods. Um, and then yet moments later, um, uh, he is wagering with Giacomo who claims that if you buy a lady's flesh at a million a dram, you cannot preserve it from tainting. So Giacomo really represents the, um, uh, um, this is something to be bought and sold. And two scenes later, the objectification is reinforced with Giacomo uh, um, addressing Imogen in the following way. Had I this cheek uh, to bathe my lips upon, this hand whose touch, whose every touch would force the feeler's soul to the oath of loyalty, this object which takes prisoner of the wild motion of mine eye, fixing it only here. Um, so this theme of objectification has been widely discussed by commenters on the play with one describing Posthumus as a husband who quote, looks on his wife as a possession whose greatest worth is the jewel of her chastity within the setting of her beauty. Another writes, his wager has removed his wife from an inner world of feeling and faith and placed her in a market of items and objects. Uh, once at stake, Imogen becomes an object of calculation not only price, but also theoretically subject to market fluctuations. So the wager in short is a powerful representation of possessive objectification. Um, and 
gambling um, uh, on another, I think, involves, as Shakespeare obviously appreciated, treating another in a manner that's wholly inconsistent with love and respect. It involves orienting oneself towards the other as an object, towards their actions as events in the world. Um, this orientation can be very wrong. Posthumous wrongs Imogen by making the bet, treating her as something to be gambled upon. Um, but gambling on others is not always wrong, or at least that's not, not the topic of the paper. Um, uh, rather, this paper concerns a different significance of the objectification involved in gambling on another person. The, the orientation of the gambler may, as in posthumous case, be wrong, but even if it's not, or when it's not, it bears on how the gambler can relate to the person on whom they gamble. So my, my claim is that a person lacks standing to complain against another person about injuries or losses that result from betting on that person's conduct. In contrast, a person who instead relies on another's conduct is not similarly barred from complaint or holding accountable. So this, this point, this distinction may at first blush seem intrinsically interesting, but sort of limited in its impact. Um, I think though that it has the potential to bear on quite significant topics in, in ethics and the law. The lack of standing to complain about losses resulting from gambling may answer, I think, certain regularly recited concerns about overexpansiveness. Uh, this is because many, um, though far from all, gains and losses in the market are akin to gambling in the relevant respects, or at least that's the direction that I'm going to gesture towards at the, the end of the, the paper. Okay, so, so I contend that most people have an inchoate but intuitive grasp of a distinction between betting and relying. That is, we have distinctive concepts for each, even if our, our linguistic practice doesn't um, uh, always precisely demarcate the different. It's easy to identify paradigmatic examples of betting on another person's conduct. So if, if Brett takes, uh, places a bet with a casino that Ali will defeat Foreman, Brett is, I think, betting. Linguistically, we might still talk about Brett in terms of reliance. Um, uh, in placing the bet, we might say that he was relying on Ali's quick feet or on Ali's ability to thrive in the biggest moments. We could even say perhaps that Brett is relying on Ali for next month's rent. But um, uh, those locutions aside, this is a, it's pretty clearly a bet placed with the casino. Um, paradigmatically, examples of reliance uh, are also pretty easy to come up with. So if Rhonda purchases a non-refundable airplane ticket in order to attend a conference on the dates set by the organizers, Rhonda is relying on the organizers. Here too, though, our language isn't um, uh, an unequivocal guide. We might say that Rhonda is gambling that the conference will not be canceled, um, but I think it seems intuitively that this is, this is reliance. So despite our intuitive sense that these are distinct or distinguishable concepts, there's obvious overlaps. Um, in each case, a person chooses to expose themselves to a potential loss depending on the conduct of another. So what's, what's the difference? Um, one might first think that reliance is distinguished by an alteration of one's circumstances in advance of the contingent events. So Rhonda's bank account is less the moment that she purchases the ticket 
um, Brett, one might think, has not lost anything until the fight happens. And only then does he win or lose, um, uh, at least as an, uh, a friendly wager. Um, uh, but even if we ignore, we ignore the fact that the casino will probably require Brett to pay up front. So this isn't, isn't really true even in, in that, that case. Um, making the bet um, much more like a non-refundable ticket, this difference seems to be purely uh, incidental feature of the example. So if Brett buys large quantities of gold because he has a, a hunch that the, the chair of the Federal Reserve will slash interest rates, he's betting in a way that involves an upfront expenditure. And if Rhonda forgoes signing up for a conference scheduled shortly after the first one, anticipating that she'll be exhausted by conferences at this point, she is acting in reliance, even though she has yet to experience any material effect. So I don't think the, the timing of the um, uh, material effect matters. A second suggestion might be that betting and reliance are distinguished by different kinds of of credences. So betting, one might think, involves a level of uncertainty that reliance does not. Someone who relies on, uh, uh, has good reason to believe that the relied upon action or event will come to pass, um, whereas betting, one might think, doesn't involve this. But again, this doesn't seem right. Um, a better might have extremely strong grounds for belief, uh, as when the poker player goes all in on four of a kind, knowing that only a rare straight flush could defeat it. Um, and similarly, or a, a, a person can rely under uncertainty. So Rhonda might ask her more skilled hunting partner to take a difficult shot on her behalf, knowing full well that she too might miss. Um, so uh, in general, a person can rely on another without good reason to believe uh, in success at all. Um, uh, Rita is sailing out to, at sea when a sudden storm capsizes and sinks her boat. The shoreline is a few miles away, almost certainly farther than she can swim. But then she remembers uh, two fishing boats operating a little further out to sea. And she decides that her best hope, though not a good one, is to head for the fishing boats and hope that one of them notices her and picks her up. Um, I'm gonna say Rita in this case is relying on the fishing boats to save her, even though there is um, uh, great uncertainty uh, and maybe even unlikely um, success. So, uh, and this, this example, Rita's example swimming towards the fishing boats also speaks against the third possible grounds for the distinction. Um, there might be a temptation to say that reliance must be induced by the person relied upon. Uh, the conference organizers um, do something that foreseeably leads Rhonda to purchase a plane ticket. Ali, in contrast, doesn't induce Brett into placing his wager. Um, but this thought breaks down quickly, I think. Even uh, the claim about Ali is not obvious. Um, uh, Ali surely knew when he agreed to the match with Foreman that people would bet on it. Um, and he may also have done things that would foreseeably lead um, uh, to further bets on it, like declaring, I done something new for this fight. I done wrestled with an alligator. I done tussled with a whale, handcuffed lightning, thrown thunder in jail, right? Um, uh, um, uh, he, was, he was definitely knowingly inducing people to, um, uh, to wager on him. Further examples um, make the point even more clearly. The poker player holding a winning hand who lures her, her opponent 
into an ill-conceived upping of the ante uh, may have induced the upping through her conduct, but the upping is, is a bet, not, not reliance. So bets can be induced and reliance need not be induced. Um, as already noted, Rita, when she swims towards the, the fishing boats seems to be relying upon the fishermen to save her life, but the fishermen have done nothing to induce that reliance. Um, uh, all right, so although in inducement can't plausibly distinguish bets from reliance, it's worth noting uh, the source of that proposal or why one might be tempted to it. Um, we have the inchoate sense that reliance is something for which the relied upon person can sometimes be responsible. Whereas bets are something for which the bet upon person is not typically at least responsible. Reliance, it seems, has the potential to matter in interpersonal morality in a way that betting, betting does not. For many theorists, it's a central question to delineate what reliance uh, requires in order to matter morally. Um, that project, though, presupposes that not all reliance matters morally, and thus um, uh, that mattering morally can't be what distinguishes reliance, reliance per se. All right, a fourth possibility um, uh, related, but more uh, promising, I think, would be to invoke the concept of trust. Reliance, the thought goes, um, involves a relationship of trust between the two people in question whereas betting does not. So Rhonda trusts the conference organizers to make good on their plans. Rita trusts the fishermen to be sufficiently good Samaritans that they would pick up a stranded swimmer if they saw her. Um, in contrast, there's no relationship of trust between Brett and Muhammad Ali or Brett and the head of the Federal Reserve. Um, so that's possibility. Uh, and this thought gets closer to the truth, but I think it's still not, not quite right. There's a there's a big, rich philosophical literature on trust, um, uh, more than I've been able to fully explore. Uh, and there's quite a range of views on its content, but for the most part, philosophical writing on trust takes as a starting point that trust is more than mere reliance. As Annette Baer puts it um, uh, quite famously, what is the difference between trusting others and merely relying on them? It seems to be reliance on their goodwill toward one as a distinct from their dependable habits or only on their dependably exhibited fear, anger, or other motives compatible with ill will toward one or on motives not directed on one at all. So trusting on this widely held view is a special form of relying, one based on other, the other person's goodwill toward the person who trusts. If that, um, uh, widely held philosophical understanding is correct, if trust is a type of reliance, then trust can't be what distinguishes reliance from betting. Notably though, perhaps unsurprisingly, discussions of trust in the social scientists tend to be less, less moralized, um, including within the concept, any uh, dependability based on self-interest. So that's like how the psychologists and economists seem to talk about it more. On this view, uh, apparent reputational or long-term reciprocity incentives of another person may ground trust in that person, even without any belief in their, their goodwill. This conception brings trust closer to mere reliance, but even on this less moralized view, trust will be, um, in the way that Bear indicates, uh, 
a narrower category than reliance. One might rely on another person merely by basing one's conduct on the other person's consistent pattern of conduct as the good people of Königsberg allegedly set their clocks based on, on Kant's daily walk. Or um, one might rely on the dependably ill motives or bad habits or uh, uh, character defects of another person. Um, uh, so for example, when, when Tom Cruise's character in A Few Good Men relies on Jack Nicholson's character's pride in ruthlessly defending America when putting him on the stand to testify, uh, that was a sort of form of reliance on, on a bad character trait. Um, so even for the, the social scientists, these will not be examples of trust. So reliance, it seems, um, doesn't require trust in, in any meaningful sense, I think. Um, uh, once again, the language can be misleading here. We could speak of these examples using word, word of trust. We would say that Brett trusts Ali to, to win the boxing match, but that's, I think, um, uh, misleading. Um, moreover, it's not clear that a bet might not be based on trust. Um, indeed, one might think that Posthumus was led to wager so confidently on Imogen's conduct based on a kind of trust. The wager is craftily presented by Giacomo as a test of posthumous trust. Uh, and um, yet it's, it's very clear, there's little doubt that posthumous is engaging in betting, not relying. Um, so, um, so again, I think the appeal to trust isn't going to, to draw this distinction for us. Still, there, there is an important insight in the appeal to trust. Trust, it seems, involves an orientation towards another person that is characteristic of much, though, though not all, reliance. Uh, in an influential article, Richard Holton describes the difference between trust and mere reliance in the following way. He says, the difference between trust and reliance is that trust involves something like a participant stance towards the person you are trusting. When you trust someone to do something, you rely on them to do it, and you regard that reliance in a certain way. You have a readiness to feel betrayal, should it be uh, disappointed, and gratitude, should it be upheld. In short, you take a stance of trust towards the person on whom you rely. It is the stance that makes the difference between trust and reliance. When the car breaks down, we might be angry, but when a friend lets us down, we feel betrayed. So Holton's thought is that what's distinguishing uh, um, trust is something um, uh, sort of Strassonian. It's, it's on the base of, of, of the participant point of view, a point of view in which we feel attitudes like resentment towards others rather than seeing others as, uh, um, as Strauss put it, uh, posing problems simply of intellectual understanding, management, treatment, and control. So for Holton, trust is reliance from the participant stance. And as such, the person who trusts another is vulnerable, not merely to disappointment, but to betrayal and accompanying feelings of resentment. This vulnerability, uh, it seems, is the necessary correlate of orienting oneself towards another as an agent who acts for reasons. Their actions uh, may then be wrongs or betrayals, not simply events in the world, like a broken down car. Um, so uh, consider uh, also in this respect, Pam Haranami. Um, she writes, if I calculate the likelihood of your veracity or make predictions about your future behavior on the basis of psychological facts about you, 
then I treat your intentions simply as so many features of my world. Though I may believe that you are a responsible agent, I treat you as an object. But if I recognize that you are a creature that acts for reasons, and I further allow your reasons to factor into my thinking and support my beliefs and decisions in something like the way of uh, my will, uh, my own will, it seems right to say that I adopt the participant's stance towards you. If further, I assume you are trustworthy and then take as central to my reasoning the reason given to you by the fact that I am relying on you, it seems plausible that this reliance would create the sort of vulnerability characteristic of the risk of betrayal. So this participant stance does not, as we've seen, distinguish reliance. I don't think that that works. There can be reliance that is um, thoroughly from the objective stance, um, as in Kant's regular uh, perambulations. But nevertheless, there's a reason why one is tempted to invoke the participant stance in seeking to distinguish from reliance from betting. Um, even though that stance isn't essential to reliance, I think it is, um, uh, as I'm gonna argue, foreign to betting um, uh, um, or um, not present, in, in, uh, essentially not present in betting. So, so all this is just to survey uh, and reject a bunch of possible ways to distinguish reliance from gambling. Um, it's hard, it seems, to pick out a distinctive characteristic of reliance per se that would um, exclude gambling from, from it. Um, more headway can be made, I think, by reversing the focus. So um, uh, attending to betting, what distinguishes betting uh, from reliance? So, so what, is, what is gambling or betting? We can start by observing that gambling involves a trade, an exchange of chances. The person who places a bet willfully accepts a chance of loss for the sake of some chance of gain. When Brett places money on Ali, he knowingly accepts a chance that he will lose his money in exchange uh, for a chance that he will win money. But that's not enough alone to distinguish the wager from many kinds of reliance. When, when Rita swims away from the shore in the hope that she will be rescued by the fishermen, she too takes on risks for the sake of potential benefit. Of course, we might describe such an action by saying it's a gamble, um, but that usage seems to describe any and all risk involving activity. It's not about gambling in the, the narrow sense or the, uh, the concept that I'm, I'm after, I think. Gambling proper, I think, is distinguished um, uh, in the following way. The gambler's potential gain is only possible because of the uncertainty. Were he not taking on a potential for loss, the gambler would have no potential for gain in this way. So the exchange of chances in a wager is not merely contingent, it's essential and reciprocal. If it was a public certainty that Muhammad Ali would defeat Foreman, then Brett would have no prospect to gain by placing a wager. And so far as he hopes to gamble, Brett would not welcome such certainty. Uh, if, in contrast, Rhonda's conference were a certainty, or Rita's safety by swimming towards, shore, towards the fishermen were assured, neither's project would be foiled in the least. Um, each would welcome the certainty. So, in summary, the, the, although both gambling on another and reliance involve gains, 
contingent on the other person's action. Gambling is distinguished in that the mechanism of the potential gain essentially involves the other person's action being an uncertain event. Um, that's, the, that's the thought. This understanding then explains why, as Shakespeare understood, it can be so objectifying to be the subject of a wager. Um, to be the subject of a wager is to have one's action treated as an event in the world. It involves others taking up the objective stance, not the participant stance towards one's actions. Recall uh, Hieronymus description. If I simply calculate the likelihood of your veracity or make predictions about your future behavior on the basis of psychological facts about you, then I treat your intentions simply as so many features of my world. I treat you as an object. That I think is precisely what the gambler does. It's precisely what Posthumus did. We can then restate the distinction between gambling and reliance in these terms. Um, uh, as I've already noted, reliance does not require uh, the participant stance. It's perfectly compatible with an objective view, but gambling requires an objective view. Gambling is positively inconsistent with assuming the, the participant stance. What distinguishes gambling is its necessarily objective stance towards the subject. One might object at this point, uh, arguing that the gambler need not object, uh, adopt an objective stance. All that is essential to the gambler, the objection would go, is that their counterpart regards the transaction as involving uncertainty about the outcome. Uh, the gambler might remain at all times fully confident of performance and at all times regard non-performance as betrayal. So um, uh, before, uh, attempting to explain why, why this objection um, doesn't work. Note what a poor defense of posthumous it offers. Um, so according to this objection, posthumous did nothing objectifying in wagering on Imogen's faithfulness. He was wagering that she would be faithful. Um, and isn't that a display of trust, the thought would go? Um, but I think that reply offers little to the charge of objectification. Posthumous's willingness to wager may be a display of confidence, even confidence born of trust, but in negotiating and making the wager, Posthumus does not treat Imogen as a beloved person. He treats her fidelity as a matter of prediction and not as something um, that she has assured. So, th so the reason that this objection fails, I wanna say, is that gambling involves joint activity requiring certain shared commitments among the participants in the gambler, in the wager. A wager between two people is basically a, a contract. Um, it's, and it's actually noteworthy um, uh, that Shakespeare emphasizes the contracting formalities in, in Cymbeline. Posthumus declares, let us have articles betwixt us. And Iacomo cries, your hand, a covenant. We will have these things set down by lawful con uh, uh, counsel. So it's, it's very clear that this was meant to be uh, formalized as a, a contract. Um, contract law, contract theorists have long appreciated that every contract uh, necessarily involves a set of shared commitments and assumptions. In making a contract, both parties implicitly endorse these underlying basic assumptions. And I think in the context of a wager, a basic assumption, perhaps the central basic assumption, is that there's a future event uncertain to occur uh, on which the, the wager is being made. 
the gambler cannot, I think, uh, avoid treating the subject of a wager with something other than the participant stance. He must, in this respect, share the stance of his counterparty um, for the purposes of the wager. Now, um, not all gambling involves a direct counterparty in the fashion of a two-person wager. So there's a complexity there um, uh, and that complicates matter, but I don't believe that it changes the important point. Gambling requires others on the other side of the bet somewhere, all of whom are engaged in a kind of joint activity. By opting into this activity, the gambler opts into its foundational assumptions, one of which is that the subject matter of the gambling is an uncertain event in the world. Gambling on another person's action then requires, I think, adopting the objective stance towards that action. So this argument um, uh, that I've just given um, should not be taken to imply that gambling on the conduct of others is necessarily wrong. It provides the resources for explaining why, why some instances of gambling are wrong, such as when a lover gam gambles on his beloved's faithfulness. Um, in these instances, gambling will be wrong because one ought not to uh, be assuming an objective stance towards that other person, towards one's beloved. Um, such gambling can be a violation of trust, intimacy, or respect. But I don't claim that the objective stance is always impermissible. It certainly wasn't um, uh, uh, Strassen's point either. We often orient ourselves towards others as objective features of our world. Indeed, if we never so oriented ourselves, we would miss out on a significant richness in the world for people are, are fascinating creatures and their actions are often surprising, amusing, beautiful events. Um, uh, if sometimes we permissibly orient ourselves towards others such that we appraise them objectively or as events, then there should be no categorical objection to gambling on the grounds that it objectifies. And I think that's right. If my, uh, if my students place bets on what color tie I will wear um, uh, next Monday, I don't see that I have any particular cause for complaint, um, uh, though it may in some sense treat me as an uh, event in the world. If two parents have a, a secret wager between them over which college their child will select, there need not be anything impermissible, although there definitely could be um, uh, if you fill it in more. Uh, and notice that those on whom society often bets, professional athletes or the reality TV contestant, may actually sort of relish being regarded as an event or a phenomenon, even uh, as it's a little alienating. So the claim that gambling on another's conduct involves abandoning the participant stance towards them, while providing the resources to say why some gambling is wrong, I don't think implies anything about the general permissibility of gambling on others' on others' conduct. My interest instead lies on the in the way that um, uh, gambling bears on the gambler's standing to complain, to resent, to hold accountable. So I contend that because the objective stance is essential to the wager, the gambler is disabled from resenting the person on whom they have gambled for losses suffered in the wager. Um, to lodge such a complaint, the gambler would have to regard the person simultaneously as an object like a roulette wheel and as an agent who is responsible for her choices. This he can't do. Um, it would be involve a kind of practical contradiction, I think. That inconsistency can be highlighted 
by noting that if the gambler were to complain, it would have a kind of heads I win, tails you lose quality to it, right? Um, if the wager comes out favorably, the gambler intends to take the winnings, but if the wager does not go as hoped, the gambler seeks to hold the wagered upon person accountable for the losses. The unfairness here uh, of that kind of structure reflects, I think, a deep kind of inconsistency. So to see the thought in action, consider a, a simple you know, toy example. Suppose that you promise me that you will meet me for lunch on, Tuesday, on Thursday. Our mutual acquaintance, Tanya, holds a general belief that you are unreliable. She bets me $50 that you will not show up on Thursday. I accept. Tanya, it turns out, is correct. You do not make it to lunch. Can I hold you accountable for the loss of my $50? Or further still, for my losing out on winning $50 uh, from Tanya? I think not. I think I have no standing to complain to you about those losses in the wager that I made uh, with Tanya. That's the, the, the basic structure. So a few clarifications. First, I'm not claiming that uh, other complaints or resentment might uh, be, uh, is, is necessarily unavailable. So in the previous example, um, uh, I may still have grounds for resenting your breach of promise. And I might complain to you on the basis of uh, uh, the fact that you breached your promise. My claim is simply that um, uh, my losses from the wager, the $50 that I lost, are not part of any grievance that I have uh, or any complaint that I have against you. Um, similarly, uh, had Imogen actually betrayed Posthumus and gone to bed with Giacomo, he, Posthumus could rightly feel aggrieved, but not for uh, the losses in the bet, not for losing his diamond ring, uh, I think. Second uh, clarification, my argument is not that in order to have grounds for complaint, an injured party must have internally adopted the participant stance towards the other person at the outset or, or throughout sort of subjectively. For example, I may regard a particular shopkeeper as completely untrustworthy and choose to rely upon him only on the prediction that he will be motivated by pure self-interest to treat me fairly uh, when nevertheless he mistreats me I can resent him for it. My reliance in such a case, although motivated by sheer prediction, is nonetheless consistent with a participant stance. And I can adopt the participant stance in, in leveling my complaint. The gambler, I think, is different. My point about the gambler is not that complaint would be a shift from the original internally adopted orientation. Rather, it's that the complaint would require simultaneously and publicly avowing two different inconsistent orientations at once. Um, third clarification, the, the argument um, applies, it seems to me, whether the wager is known to the person gambled upon or not. That is, even if you learn about my wager with Tanya prior to our lunch date, I still can't complain about my losses when you don't come through. That might be surprising for it suggests that the wagered upon person may have actual notice and knowledge of a loss that will result um, from their action and yet nonetheless not be responsible for it. Um, but I'm, I'm prepared to endorse that, that conclusion even though I see that it's a little um, uh, surprising and um, I, I think there'll probably be exceptions to that as 
uh, general rule, but that's that's what I think the, the answer is. Okay, so so all of this is making what might seem like a, a fairly narrow point about the standing um, uh, that arises when we, we gamble on other people. I wanna just sort of finish up by gesturing at the way this might um, matter. So the above, the conclusion that I reached that the, the gambler lacks standing to complain against the gambled upon person may seem plausible enough, but, but not um, uh, of great significance. After all, one might think gambling occupies a pretty small place in our, our social life, but it doesn't take much to notice that a significant amount of market activity, um, anything that has within it an element of speculation, bears a significant resemblance to gambling. When we purchase stock, open a business, buy a house in a particular neighborhood, we acquire the potential for gains and simultaneously take on the peril of losses, the upside risk and the downside risk of the market. These gains and losses depend on the actions of others. The stock price could rise or fall based on what others in the market do. The demand for the business could boom or evaporate. The neighborhood could improve or deteriorate. So, so there's a similarity. In noting the similarity here, I don't mean to say, uh, um, uh, although some many people actually have, that in market investment just is gambling. I don't mean to be saying that. Um, nor do I mean to comment on the social value of investing. Um, Henry Ford once, once quipped, as betting at the race ring adds neither strength nor speed to the horse, so the exchange of shares in the stock market adds no capital to business, no increase in the production and no pr uh, purchasing power to the market. So, so that was Henry Ford's uh, little take. That's not what I'm, my, my, my point here. Um, my point is simply that certain kinds of market activity involve, like gambling, an orientation towards the conduct of others as towards uncertain events. Um, if that's correct, then it could potentially explain why certain losses are not injuries for which we can hold those who cause them responsible. So some economic injuries, though by no means all, um, are maybe regarded appropriately as lost wagers. That fact in turn might offer a line of response to certain common concerns about overexpansive responsibility. So both in moral philosophy and in the law, it's often observed that responsibility cannot possibly extend to all injuries caused by reliance on our conduct. So Jay Wallace, for example, comments, considered as a general basis for social life, principles that governed agents whenever third parties might have an unforeseeable interest in relying on them would be virtually paralyzing and the agents would have powerful objections to such principles on their own behalf. Um, similarly, the law generally refuses to allow complaints by persons who rely on a promise or a representation made to someone else and as justification, the expansiveness of the liability that might otherwise accrue um, uh, is often cited. So this is what uh, um, Judge Benjamin Cardozo famously called, referred to as an indeterminate amount for an indeterminate time to an indeterminate class, um, uh, too much liability. So, um, and the common law also traditionally precludes tort recovery for what's called pure economic loss. That is loss to one's business or livelihood not accompanied by an injury to the person or property. 
And that rule is also often justified on the grounds that anything else would, quote, open the door to every person in the economic chain to bring a cause of action. So in all these kind of contexts, there's an understandable thought that we can't possibly expect everybody to answer to anyone who may have in some fashion relied upon them. Um, uh, instead, uh, the thought typically goes, we have to find some other basis for accountability or answerability. Mere reliance, mere harm won't do. Um, for more philosophers, there's often an appeal to directed duties. For the law, there's an appeal to privity, which similarly involves something like, like directed duties. Um, the thought is, um, we are not answerable to those who rely on us, but only to those to whom we owe a duty, with, with reliance sometimes, but not always, generating a duty. Um, and, and you know, there are, to be sure, lots of independent arguments that favor such a conception of interpersonal accountability. Um, but an influential one, I think, is this um, idea that any other option would um, open us to a sea of unrestrained accountability um, or, or else just to some sort of ad hoc policy-based line drawing, that there's no, no, other, no other option. So I'm, I aim here to be kind of gesturing at another alternative. We can agree that there cannot possibly be accountability for all instances of reliance, broadly construed, to every third party beneficiary of a promise, to anyone who suffers economic losses from an accident, to our neighbors for the effects of our choices on their home values and so on. Um, that would be um, uh, too much accountability, too much liability. But rather than concluding that there must be some other narrower basis for accountability, like directed duties or privity or just public policy, um, we can seek to explain why certain kinds of harm do not generate accountability. That is, we can try to regard these cases of economic losses as exceptions to a broad default of accountability, not evidence that accountability lies in some other basis. So a general advantage of this alternative strategy, it seems to me, is that it regards the participant's stance as our default orientation towards others in our moral community. It says, in effect, that I can trust you to keep your promises, even if they're made to someone else. I can trust you to avoid negligence, negligent accidents, and so on. It's not necessary that you induce my reliance or even that you know of my reliance. I can resent you if you fail to do as you ought. I can see it as a betrayal. The fact that I can't complain about certain speculative losses I think is, uh, is just an exception. And it's an exception based in this um, uh, loss of standing for those uh, who make the kind of speculative wagers. So that's, that's the thought. Thanks. <laughs>